Hello, and welcome to The Noble Perspective, the podcast where we discuss everything from wealth management to current events. Hey, everybody, it's Jeff with Noble Wealth Partners, and welcome to episode number five of The Noble Perspective. Um, This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Jim Glenn, who is an adjunct finance and business management professor based in the Washington, D.C. area, um, teaching most notably at the University of Virginia's online business school, Strayer University, and he teaches at a, a number of different military complexes, including Quantico, um, in and around the D.C. area. So he has a fascinating uh, opinion on a lot of different things. He has his fingers on the pulse, as you'd like to say. Um, I will point out that the opinions he shares are definitely his own and not necessarily those of the Noble Wealth Partners team. Um, but we think it's important to understand all the different viewpoints, even ones uh, that we might not necessarily uh, at first blush agree with. So um, you'll find it fascinating as he gets into what the Federal Reserve does, what it does wrong, and why he thinks we need to get rid of it. Um, as well as giving us at the end of the episode his three-point plan on how he would handle the growing problem of inequality in America. So um, without further ado, here is episode number five of The Noble Perspective. Joining us this week on The Noble Perspective is the great Dr. Jim Glenn. Jim is an adjunct professor at a number of different university programs, most notably the University of Virginia and Strayer University currently. Um, He is also a very fine resource on everything that comes to do with the Federal Reserve. So this week we're going to be chatting about a lot of different um, exciting topics, including public policy, the Federal Reserve, how Dr. Glenn would approach uh, different avenues in that world. But before we do that, uh, Jim, if you wouldn't mind for the audience, if you could talk a little bit about who you are, how you came to where you are today, and and what it is that you're excited about. And we'd be remiss if we uh, also didn't have you talk a little bit about the book. Uh-huh. Okay. I uh, I grew up in the D.C. metropolitan area, so I've been around politics and uh, economics and finance all of my life. Um, I uh, went to American University here in D.C. and uh, ended up with a degree in finance and a minor in econ. Uh, in the late 70s, I went into the brokerage business where I was a retail investment advisor for about uh, until about 97. Uh, at which point I decided, uh, because of the online presence, a new online presence of, um, you know, discount brokers, et cetera, that the era of the retail broker, at least as, as I, I was at that point, uh, was over. Um, could not compete against $5 trades. Uh, went back to school when I uh, earned an MBA in finance and then went, uh, while I was doing that, I, so I was an investment advisor for Prudential Base in Merrill Lynch, um, Ferris Baker Watts, which is a regional here in the D.C. area, and uh, a, few, a few other firms. I had a client base that averaged between three and 400 clients and uh, really enjoyed the business. Got into it because my grandmother left me some stocks, and that's what got me interested in the stock market and markets and finance originally. Uh, but... I, I got tired. It, that's a very, as you know, um, repetitive, transaction-oriented business. Um, yep. Uh, and it was a commission-only business, so it's pretty high stress. Uh, and that, combined with the fact that uh, everything was going online, compelled me to, you know, get off the dime and go back to school and retool and find something else to do. Which is, I did uh, was a financial specialist with uh, Wachovia and Wells Fargo for a while uh, and worked in commercial lending and underwriting for about five years while I was getting my doctorate. 
got in 2006. I got my doctorate in finance uh, from Nova Southeastern, which is in Florida. It's uh, about 60,000 students. It's, it's a Wayne Hunter School of Business and uh, beautiful campus, good school. I yeah. really enjoyed the process and. Uh, that sort of segued me into education. In 2004, I started teaching uh, undergraduates at the uh, University of Maryland, University College, and things like investments in corporate finance and derivatives and risk management because I had all the licenses still, like Series 215 and Series 7 and all that, uh, and a deep background in those areas. So uh, that's kind of how I started. Then I got hired full-time. Uh, Upon receiving the doctorate in 2006, I went to work for Education Management Corps, EDMC, uh, Argosy University here in Washington, where I was full-time faculty for about 10 years. Um, and during all of this time, um, I, I've, I've pondered, I, I've watched with a, a degree of a, uh, dismay, <laughs> what you might call distress, Sure. What's happened? What's happening to our economy, and what's happened to our political system? And I think that because the two basically walk hand in hand, in my opinion, uh, and that is what has led me to writing this book, Wealth Inequality in America: Causes, Consequences, uh, and, uh, and Solutions. Is the name? It will be the name of the book. And I've got ten chapters finished. It's about done. I just I need to spend another 40 or 50 hours on it and get the reference list together and uh, get some permissions for, for a few charts, and I've got a publisher lined up. But the the uh, the premise of the book is that the, the, a big part of our problem is our central bank, which is not really called the Federal Reserve, which is not federal, and uh, is really works works for very wealthy individuals and their constituents, which are their member banks, and but not for the American people. And they're basically unelected officials with more power than anybody else in anybody in government. And money does make the world go round, as you know, Jeff, I'm sure. Uh, uh, yeah. All the first thing. So anyway, that's kind of, that's what, that's uh, my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> no, I think it's, uh, it's absolutely fascinating and, and terrific because I think that this topic has become very popular in our space. Um, we have seen quite a, a few people start writing about inequality and the failure of capitalism. And I know uh, my business partner, Grant, whom you know very well, um, had shared an article with you from Ray Dalio of uh, Bridgewater fame and, and hedge fund manager. Um, yeah, I thought it was it was really terrific. And I, I think it's so topical right now because I think there's a lot of folks who have the same opinion that you do, myself included, um, who may not have exactly the, the the right frame of mind to know where all of these problems came from. So you mentioned the Federal Reserve, and I'm always somewhat fascinated by this, um, mostly from the perspective that I think the Fed uh, sometimes is criticized for things they shouldn't be criticized for, but oftentimes is lauded for things that um, – that they don't deserve any credit for. Um, so I'm curious on, on your thoughts uh, going back. I, I mean, I realize that they're not elected officials. I realize they have so much power, but where do you think um, things went, took a wrong turn? Maybe, and maybe they did uh, at the advent um, in the early 1900s, just the fact that we created a central bank. But I, I'm just curious about your, your thoughts on the history and, and where things kind of went haywire. 
Okay. Well, as you as you probably know, it's not our first central bank. We've had three. Uh, the first yep. one shortly after uh, the American Revolution, and then one in the early 1800s, which was ended by Jackson. Uh, so from 1835 to 1913, the country uh, had no, we had no central bank. In 1913, a bunch of very wealthy industrialists got together off the coast of uh, Georgia at a place called Jekyll Island. Yep. The Rothschilds, the Warburgs, the Morgans, the, the Gettys, uh, or, or their representatives got together to formulate this was in 1911, to uh, devise a plan to put together a central bank for the United States, which would control money and credit, um, ostensibly, ostensibly, I say, to uh, even out the boom-bust cycles uh, that prevailed, you know, had prevailed in, in the business world um, since from 1835 to 1913. There was a panic, financial panic in 1907, which was used as an excuse to basically ram the Federal Reserve bill through Congress in 1913 under Wilson's administration. And Wilson, after signing it, said, and I, ha I have a quote, the quote in my book, that it was, uh, he said basically, I, 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 I have ruined my country, I'm a miserable man, something to that extent. Uh, all the founding fathers were, uh, all except Hamilton, were adamantly opposed to central banking because basically central banking is a very, you know, it's a diabolically clever mm -hmm. wealth transfer mechanism which takes money from the lower and middle classes and moves it upward. Um, right. and, I, and I could, I, and I elaborate that on my book at how that mechanism works. It's not rocket science, but it is pretty clever obfuscation. Right. Uh, when you control, you know, when you control the, the levers of money and credit, which the, which these gentlemen do, um, you you control the country, um, and they create, as you said, you they get credit for being inflation fighters, but they're fighting the inflation that they created in the first place. And this happens <laughs> decade after decade. They, I tell my students, think of an accordion player. You know, when they they pull the accordion out, you know, that's the said expanding the money supply, creating excess liquidity and the bubble du jour. When you press the accordion back together, that's them, that's that's the collapse, okay, which inevitably follows. Um, right. the first the first the largest collapse was nineteen twenty nine, uh, uh after the after their founding. And many uh, they uh, they tightened they started tightening money uh much well much too quickly. Whether this was deliberate or just bad policy, you know, is a, is a matter of debate still. But in either case, margin calls that were called in, margin accounts were called in, and a panic ensued, and the rest is history. So then we, they created the Great Depression, which uh, the the FDR's New Deal and the World War II got us out of that. Um, but my my major problem with the Fed is one, it's they're not elected. Two, um, it's a monopoly. Mm -hmm. uh, three, it is not a monopoly that that is really exists for the average American. It exists for wealthy Americans and for those with pe those people with uh, access to to credit. Um, and that would be so. And when I said earlier, it's a, a brilliant, diabolically clever wealth transfer mechanism. These bubbles are deliberately created for the wealthy and their member in the member banks 
That's right. one. The most recent being the housing bubble. Uh, and now we've seen the stock market bubble. I, I mean, personally, I think it's a bubble. I think valuations are really stretched right now. Sure. Uh, maybe not bubble, but close. Um, so the Fed, decade after decade, just in my lifetime alone, I've seen seven or eight of these, you know, boom busts, uh, credit cycles basically caused, created by four Fed, its member banks, and their best customers. They're very wealthy individuals. And so they, whatever the asset bubble is, of course, these people, they're at the font, they're at the very font of capitalism where money, money, in a fractional reserve banking system, money is debt and debt is money. Mm-hmm. So there is there is no money until a debt until a loan is taken out of the bank, and then money is loaned into creation. And then so this this is a little hard for most Americans to wrap their head around. This is where it gets tricky. Mm-hmm. But inflation is built into that system because there has to be enough new money created every year to pay the interest that along back along with the principal interest. Mm-hmm. The money must be created. So yeah. the faster the loan growth, the faster the inflation rate. And you can see, you can watch the you can see those two uh, correlated, highly correlated over time, as is inflation and money supply, of course. So higher money supply, higher inflation. Uh, it's a pretty simple trick to turn the money spigots on, uh, mm-hmm. get the get get member banks to start lending, and. They can control the spigot, but they can't control where the where the money flows. That's the trick, and that's why you have to be diversified, because you never really know where the money is going to go. It's the, a banker's favorite collateral is real estate. So right. oftentimes it's oftentimes it's real estate, but if after this collapse in '08, everybody was pretty wary of real estate, so stocks became the only game in town, and they were beaten to death. So. 2009, 2010 was a great, you know, entry point for the stock market. Uh, and we've had a, a great boom, a great run since then. It's been, it's been tremendous if you've been in the market. Right. So, uh, once again, that's 30, that's 30 to 40 percent of Americans. And basically, one, at this point in our history, one tenth of one percent, um, one tenth of the one percent owns 17 percent of the nation's wealth. You know the statistics. I don't. I'm mean, not sure. Yeah. So, so, so this scheme called a central bank and central and, and uh, fractional reserve banking works incredibly well for the wealthy, but not for the rest of us. Because if you don't have the inflation hedge of the real estate, the stocks, or the bonds, the precious metals, if you don't have an inflation hedge, you're left far, far behind because the price level doubles every ten or twelve years in this country. Right. So, you're 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 dead on arrival without inflation hedges, and of course the poor can't afford this. They don't have them, so they just yeah. get further and further and further behind. And that's that's what I've seen happening, particularly since the Carter Reagan Reagan really ushered it in by busting, you know, by union busting, in my opinion. Right. The air traffic controllers and uh, him and Thatcher with their Neoliberalism, you know, was, was the policy, sure. which is kind of a misnomer. Uh, but but you know the policy, uh, deregulate, mm-hmm. privatization, deregulation, and totally free flow of capital worldwide with no with no constraints, no restraints. So um, that's in a very 
that's that's a very short look at, at kind of what my book's about. So it moves sequentially from the founding of the Federal Reserve uh, through the crash of '29, uh, the creation of Bretton Woods, the dollar as a reserve currency of the world, um, Nixon and going off the the gold standard, and um, I guess the military-industrial complex can't leave them out. No, no. Uh, and then, then an idea. If I wrap it up with, you know, potential solutions. So yeah, I think that. Go ahead, Jim. I'm sorry. No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Well, I find it fascinating. So I've tried to explain, and you touched on this, that it's a it's a very complicated thing. Um, I think when you when you break it down as you did, um, this is the way I try to explain it to to our clients or to friends or family that ask me about my opinion in the economy is, yeah. you know, would you be able to buy a half a million dollar house if it weren't for credit? And the answer, of course, is no. I mean, most people don't have those types of resources. And and then is the house actually worth a half a million dollars or is the availability of credit what makes it worth a half a million dollars? And so you start to get into the circular logic of, of um, you couldn't afford the house if you didn't have it. Um, but but is that what is actually pushing the price of homes up is the availability of this credit. And then once you own the home, you're, you're paying not only what you borrowed to, to own that home, but plus the, the interest on that, which makes it even exorbitantly more expensive. And that kind of hits on your point is as we issue debt and, and create loans, and then that, you know, there needs to be more money supply to support that. Is that, is that fairly close? Correct. That's yeah. correct. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and it's fascinating. Go ahead. Yeah, so if, if, uh, you know, as you know, if if the supply, if the money supply, uh, supply of money and credit rises without without an equal or commensurate rise in goods and services, inflation must result and always does. Right. So sometimes, sometimes the inflation is in goods and services. More often than not, it's often in asset bubbles, but there will be inflation. So because the money has to go, it has to go somewhere. And it also goes into imports. A lot of the money, that's why we have these persistent trade imbalances, because a lot of that money goes into imports. We have these asset bubbles decade after decade, because a lot of that excess liquidity finds its way into stocks and bonds and real estate and precious metals and art, art and whatever, you know, collectibles people like at the time. So, um, yeah, and your point about real estate, uh, is a is a good one. The bubble could not have happened. It would not have been possible without a complicit Federal Reserve. Without without the avail without the credit, the interest rates were at fifty year lows, as you know right. probably. Yeah. And the available the, the credit was readily available. Money supply was growing at a incredibly exponential rate. Probably I I haven't I don't know the exact figures, but. Uh, much that. faster. Yeah. Money, money supply should grow at the same rate as the economy. The economy's grown at 3%. Money supply should grow at 3%. But that's not what happens. When the Fed turns on the spigot, money supply grows four, five, six times faster than the economy. And then all that extra liquidity sloshes into one asset class or another, creating, creating the bubbles that I refer to, which is great if you're in that asset class. <laughs> Right. If you own the house, if you own the stock. Yeah. It's not so great if you don't. Right. Because then you can't afford the house. You know, and you're left renting. And, you know, it, it, it's just, it's, it, it, it's, um, so 
it's inherently, in my opinion, unethical and unfair. And I guess that's the, my biggest problem is one of fairness in the sure. system. Um, in the, the inequity that's now the wealth divide is greater than it's ever been, as you know. So the systems work extraordinarily well for really wealthy individuals or, or the upper, you know, upper middle class, but it's, it's failed everybody else. Um, and sooner or later you would think, once again, my personal viewpoint is that from reading a lot of history is that the very wealthy in their own enlightened self-interest would try and level the playing field. And there are philanthropists that do that, but there are many, many that don't. And the tax burden in, as well has increasingly shifted from the very wealthy and corporations to the middle class. And that's yeah. also a matter of fact that you cannot argue with. They, you just look at the statistics and they tell the story. Um, the, the burden, tax burden has inoxidably shifted. Um, and corporations, those that pay taxes, are have to pay some of the lowest taxes in the world. If they pay uh, them at all. Yeah, if at all, right. Yeah. Half of them don't. So, <laughs> Correct. Um, anyway, so it's just the inequity in it all that really bothers me as a citizen and as an academic. I just, I wanted, I wanted to try and put together a book that would just trace the origins and then kind of, kind of demonstrate the mechanism, how the mechanism is used by central banks. Not only, our, our central bank was modeled on the one in Switzerland. And, from the 1650s. <laughs> so this yeah. has been around a long time. That's nothing new. Um, so uh, it, it, it's, 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 it is what it is. It's diabolically clever in many respects. And it, but unfortunately, it, 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 the one thing I tell my students, all of them at every level I teach, from doc students down to undergrads, I say, please get yourself an inflation hedge. Buy, buy a home. Buy buy stocks, buy precious metals, buy something that will keep pace with inflation. Yeah, because it because it is built into the system and it, it is inevitable. Sometimes worse than others. We've been fortunate that the that the demand for loan loan demand has been down for the last ten years for obvious reasons, and the banks, having been burned a little bit, uh, are much are leery are leery about lending. So. That's why we haven't seen explosive inflation through all this quantitative easing that's been going on. Right. Uh, so, uh, because the banks are essentially borrowing from the, the Fed is buying non-performing assets from the Fed, mortgage-backed securities, and then the banks are taking those reserves and, and putting, and buying risk-free, putting them, uh, in, in Federal Reserve, back in the Federal Reserve account to earn, you know, half of 1% or 1% interest risk-free rather than loaning it out. Right. Which is what's been going on for the last 10 years. And that know, suppresses the loan fun. demand and, yeah. Yeah, so we've had no velocity of money. They call, you know, the economists call it velocity of money. There's no velocity because there's no loan demand. Uh, right. And the banks have been lending like, like, like madmen, like they, you know, were in 2000. To 2008. Yeah, and I, um, I guess we should probably correct ourselves. There may be loan demand there, but the banks have no—they um, have no reason or, or no desire to push that money into the system. 
Right, exactly. Not when they, yeah. they get a risk-free return of, you know, one and a half or two percent. Yeah, risk-free two percent. If you can, yeah. that's the old uh, license to steal mantra I talked about with banks is, you know, lend it out at six, um, pay people three uh, to, to hold their deposits and, and then go home at, at noon. Um, <laughs> so they found a new way to do that. That's right. Yeah. So I got a quick question for you, uh, Dr. Glenn, if you if you wouldn't mind. Um, you know, the the Federal Reserve has a very cursory uh, understanding, I think, from from the general public. But I think people's, I know you and I probably have a little bit of a deeper understanding on this. But I think generally people assume that when the economy goes bad, they lower interest rates to get money out there to hopefully um, correct some imbalances of, uh, of a contracting economy. And then when there is a potential for um, for inflation, when things are going really, really well, um, the old adage that they take the, the, the keys away, um, yeah. or the punch bowl away, excuse me, from the party. Um, what do we do without this system of a central bank to control those imbalances? Do we just allow them to sort of ebb and flow and, and, and meter out themselves through the, through the great market? Or is there uh, another better solution um, that would be in place? Well, that's a good question. And I, I don't, uh, I, I wouldn't presume to be the de facto expert uh, as far as having an answer, but I can say right. this. Me neither, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> we have uh, the deepest and most liquid um, price setting uh, inter- uh, price setting mechanism in the world called the bond market, right? Which sets which sets interest rates based on supply and demand every day. So, uh, being a free market, I believe in free markets, but we we have not had free markets in this country for many decades, in mm-hmm. my opinion. So. Uh, I'm a big believer in free markets. I would say let the free let let interest rates find their equilibrium level through sub, the supply and demand for you know various instruments. Uh, so because whenever because we're running essentially a planned economy, just like communism. Sure. When you think about it, we have a planned economy. If you have these these men in hoods. Long black cloaks behind big you know, oak doors, making decisions about where interest rates should be, or how much money should be available, and to who. Mm-hmm. Um, that that inherently leads to malinvestment and these boom-bust cycles that we've seen, and then an unfair an unfair advantage for some at the expense of the many, in my opinion. So. Um, one, get rid of them and have the markets set interest rates. Two, have somebody, we have a, an entity called the Treasury Department. Right. Which can gauge the pace of economic growth and can supply available money and credit as, as necessary. If the, if the economy is moving along at 3%, then you increase money supply 3%. No more, no less. And the market will do that for us um, because it's in their interest to do so. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't think I, w- I would say, along with Ron Paul, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I would say get rid of the Fed. I think they do much more harm than good, personally. I, I, that's observations based on, you know, 45 years in the markets and, and 
just uh, reading everything I could get my hands on on uh, having to do with uh, the market politics and the economy, and we don't need them. Right. They're really an anachronism, and they're not there for us. They're there for they're there for banks, which are there to basically. As um, Griffin, have you read the creature from Jekyll Island? I haven't, but uh, I've heard about it. So, yeah. Excellent book called The Creature from Jekyll Island, written by, I think his first name is Robert. Last name is Griffin. Um, but he calls it, he calls the Fed an instrument of totalitarianism because of the inherent servitude, the, the inevitable servitude that it will put most of us in. And that's, wow. that's what the founding fathers, the, the found, you know, whether it was, uh, Washington or Jefferson, or Adams, or any of these any of these men were all vociferously, adamantly opposed to a central bank, and this is why. That is why, and it hasn't yeah. changed. There's, there's <laughs> the same. This, the, the, but the, the bank itself deliberately obfuscates the very name Federal Reserve is a misnomer because it's not federal. Sure. No, nope. it's privately held. It's clever, right? Very clever. Mm -hmm. But, um, and basically an instrument to enrich the wealthy at the expense of the middle class and the poor, in my opinion. Well, which quite frankly... They've done an amazing job, obviously. <laughs> well, well, they certainly have. Uh, yeah, and I was going to say, quite frankly, I think the banking system in general, um, I think we need one. A healthy banking system is good for the expansion of, of the economy, but I would say that it's also a, a very good instrument for uh, creating wealthy people at the expense of the poor. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't do away with the bank the banking system. Uh, I, I think the I, – I would, I would prefer to see free market mechanisms uh, – uh, because, because whenever you tinker, you know, whenever you tinker with the um, the price mechanism, you end up with mal you end up with distortions in in pricing, uh, whether whether it's whether it's interest rates or money supply, and and that inevitably leads to problems. Yeah, and dis the distortions are what create the the need to to have the corrections, right? And that, and that elasticity in the correction right. is what people that's the pain that's created when things get distorted in one direction or the other. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. That's the boom. Yeah, that's the boom. And then there's yeah. always the inevitable bust. And you know, um, the bust is usually it's kind of like gaining and losing weight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Being a man of years, I call it the battle of the bulge. But no, it's always much much easier putting it on than taking it off. But in in, in similar fashion, the bust is always many times worse. It, it does much more harm than the boom. The no, boom no question. The boom, is great. the boom is great for maybe thirty percent of the population. The bust affects everybody except that thirty the other seventy percent. So, right. The very wealthy among us don't give a damn. When you have billions and billions of dollars, who cares? So, really, what, they don't they don't care about this boom bust cycle. They don't care about the carnage created, the aftermath of a housing bubble, where properties, what I read, twenty five to thirty percent of properties are still underwater from two thousand eight. So. Um, 
No question. That is a very difficult situation. And I was, I was going to point us in another direction here too, because of a situation when we talk about boom and bust, um, every elected official has a reason to want boom. Um, you know, the busts don't make anybody win elections, uh, and neither does, does, uh, common sense monetary or fiscal policy, unfortunately. So, it, when we talk about these officials not being elected and being appointed by our elected officials, they unfortunately get a lot of meddling. Um, we've seen this very prominently in the headlines with, uh, President Trump and his, uh, pushing around, if you will, of Jerome Powell. Um, right. curious what you think of, of that relationship. I mean, obviously doing away with the Fed would make this, uh, a moot point, but I, I'm just curious what you think of, of where we are politically, what's kind of led us down this path and, and, um, is there any way that that can be fixed? Um, well, that's a, that's a loaded question. Um, <laughs> I wasn't going to give you all easy ones. <laughs> um, the, um, um, so the Fed, the Fed has ostensibly has a two man. I mean, they've had, they've, they've had severe mission creep since 87, they being the Fed. Right. Uh, but prior to, prior to 87, the crash of 87, their, their uh, mandate was to, uh, uh, to create stable prices and full employment. Uh, price stability and full employment. Ostensibly, those were their right. mandates um, provided by by Congress or you know the Warbirds. I'm not sure who. <laughs> uh, but um, so, and they have never, in my opinion, they have always sided with capital over labor. Yes. Okay. Just generally speaking, I think that would be safe to say that. Um, the, the Fed is in the Fed is in place, and by its very nature, going to favor favor capital over the labor that created the wealth that created the capital. That's kind of the ironic part: is the people that create the wealth, the laborers, yep. don't get to enjoy any increased productivity. So, if you look at productivity, for example, has gone up, you know, steadily since the 70s. Wages have flatlined. In, in inflation adjusted terms. So there, but, but who has, whose wealth has accrued mightily? Well, the top 10%, especially the top 1%. Yep. So the by, equity owners of these businesses, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in, in my opinion, uh, the, the preponderance of evidence seems to point to the fact that one, they're not apolitical. They're more, they're, they're kind of by their nature Republican oriented mm-hmm. because the Republicans are the, you know, they, they are the party of business. Sure. And labor is the party, and the Dem, uh, Democrats are the party of labor. And, um, never the twain shall meet. And they mm-hmm. haven't for, for, you know, a hundred, over a hundred years. Um, we wouldn't have a 40 hour work week and we wouldn't have, you know, child labor laws. We wouldn't have, you know, PTO, et cetera. Without, without, you know, FDR and uh, and labor unions, for example. Mm-hmm. But on the other side, you have the Fed and its minions and all the incredible power that's embodied in all the capital behind all of that. Uh, and that will always eventually win, in my opinion. 
in winning, it's going to be a pyrrhic victory for the conservatives mm-hmm. because the country will be, the country will be destroyed. There will be a revolution. Ultimately, if you take this to its natural conclusion, I don't want to sound like a Marxist here, but um, at some point, things the, the divisions will become so so uh, obvious and so bad that there'll there'll be there'll be fighting over the pie, and money that can can leave the country will leave the country, and you know, things will look somewhat like Venezuela, you know, maybe twenty or thirty or forty years from now. But if this continues, so as I was saying earlier, uh, no, so the Fed. Uh, uh, Trump pushing the Powell around, you know, that's just uh, President Trump being a, his his um, himself. Yeah, that's who he is. His his, his uh, nasty bullying self, um, and, and trying to throw a bone to his base by, by and 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 much of his base, of course, uh, encompasses Wall Street and the very wealthy and the people invested in markets who want to see interest rates stay as low for as long as possible. They want the party to go on, especially into into the elections, of course. Right. So so um I guess I'm not answering your I guess your question was my my thoughts on, on the Fed and being apolitical, no, they're not. I they can't be right and I think they're conservative in nature and I think that um, they're not. They're antithetical to uh, anathema to working men and women's rights, mm-hmm. and that's another issue that I have with the Fed. So yeah, that's they just pile up as we continue to talk. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> <laughs> well, but the answer, you know, it's just about fairness. It's just none of it's fair. Yeah. It's, it's, and now we have a caste system because of this society of ours. We now have a caste system. Basically, if you can afford, if you can afford the right university, and get your kid into the right school, and pay three or four hundred thousand dollars for an undergraduate degree, they'll get out and they'll make a make a very good living, probably. Sure. Um, if you can't do that, you're you're once again a second tier or third tier citizen. So, and, and maybe that's the way it's always been in every country in the world. Um, it has it has been that way to a greater or lesser extent throughout history. Yeah, um, for thousands of democracy, years. Democracy, you know, yeah, we're supposed to be that shining. What is it? The shining, the uh, star on the hill, the light on the hill, the sure. beacon. Uh, a beacon, a north star. To, yeah, we're supposed to be uh, more egalitarian than that. We're supposed to at least try anyway. <laughs> so that, that was like the that. promise of that. That was the promise of. Uh, you know, President Trump, which was, of course, uh, uh, obviously uh, ball-faced uh, uh, mistruth. Um, yeah, we'll call it. Uh, not anybody, any most people should have known that a billionaire like him is not going to be interested in the welfare of uh, a middle-class family making fifty-two thousand dollars a year. <laughs> um, but anyway. Who are, who are we to to know that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't. Yeah, I'm not. I, so I don't know if that answers your question or not. I, I guess it boils it down. To, it boils down to the inherent inequities in the system yeah. that that have been built into it and are perpetuated um, by those at the very top and in our political system, in our banking system, in our military industrial complex. That's all 
And in Washington, you, I don't have to go far. I would just take a stroll down K Street to see it. That's, um, you know, money, and this is why you would have to get money out of politics, because money buys access and access buys influence. Influence buys legislation, which gets turned into law. And oftentimes the lobbyists themselves have the corporations write the legislation that gets passed into law. So, right. uh, and that's how the tax law changes, and that's how these corporations get away without paying taxes. And, you know, it's just uh, all these all these systems, these three or four major systems that we have in place now, political, economic, legal, et cetera, uh, are all conspiring against the little guy. The, 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 average, the average American doesn't stand a chance anymore. Right. It's just so it's it's I'm thankful that I'm not twenty five years old. I'm just <laughs> or twenty you know, trying to trying to make it because things have gotten so much more difficult, so much more competitive, so much more expensive. Uh and and, and as you know, class mobility, uh we've gone from first or second place in class the the you know, their scales and indexes for this. We're now in seventh or eighth place as far yes. as being able to move up from one class to another. It's just gotten increasingly harder, especially over the last 40 years or so. So uh, if you're in the lower, if you're in the lower middle class trying to move to the upper middle class, the odds are really stacked against you. Most definitely. Um, so I think, uh, for our last question, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you would try to end on a, on a somewhat positive note. Um, you know, it's a deeply complex issue. We all, uh, we all understand that. But if you could snap your fingers, if there were three relatively simple broad brush strokes that we could change tomorrow, what would be the first things? And I know one of those three would be to get rid of the Fed. Um, probably goes without saying at this point, but, but, you know, outside of that one, what are the other two that we could do that would be good pragmatic fixes that, that could probably steer us down um, a better path? Yeah. I'd like, to, I'd like to see, uh, private and corporate money taken out of politics. Yep. Entirely. Uh, and a third one would be probably to reinstate the draft. Interesting. I think if we reinstated the draft, we wouldn't be in all these useless, expensive wars decade after decade after decade, um, in my opinion. Yeah, do you think um, because we would not put people in office that would potentially draft our young people into the military? Is that is that your thought well, process well, there? Well, because the politicians themselves wouldn't want their own kids being, being sent ah. to Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria or whatever yeah. the, the hot spot of the day was. And... and People in general, of course, uh, yeah, in the general population, of course, would would uh, be adamantly opposed to uh, getting us involved. And in, in these wars are again uh, designed, in my opinion, to 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 provide war profiteers with with more income. The defense budget is now pushing eight hundred billion dollars a year, yeah, which is which is obscene. And any the military, I have military, many military friends. And yeah. I teach at the military bases around D.C., and they'll be the first to tell you how wasteful and profligate the Pentagon is. They and you never hear this from a conservative, of course. Well, but yeah, the, the, never. I mean, they're sacrosanct. You can't, you know, they can do no wrong. They get a Trump just gave him a ten percent increase last year because he's right. throwing, you know, trying to buy votes, but. There, it's to, to me, 
these wars, these, you know, uh, Gore Vidal called it endless war for endless profit. Right. And that's the, another part of the problem. So I'd bring back the dress. I think it'd be a quick way to possibly resolve uh, uh, the situation where we're the world's policemen. Uh, once again, we can't afford it. Two, it's not our business. Three, we create more harm than good. Being in, we're now in 80 countries around the globe, um, and reviled, reviled in most, uh, yeah. if not many. So, those are the three things I think. Uh, get rid of the Fed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and back the draft, and get money out of politics. I think it would go a long way to cleaning up our system. Thank you, Jim. I think that is a really nice way to sort of wrap this up with your three-point plan there. Um, Give our listeners something to think about in how they perceive the economy, how they perceive U.S. policy and government. I know everybody has an opinion when it comes to politics, but I think it's always nice to have a little bit more information to support the the opinions that you might have. So, uh, again, just to reiterate, um, getting rid of the Fed, we'd start there. Um, getting corporate money out of the U.S. election system, I think um, most people would agree with that, that special interests make things very, very difficult on the average person. Um, and then lastly, the one that I find just the absolutely most fascinating one is reinstituting the draft. Um, so, you know, clearly some uh, controversial ideas there, I guess, for lack of a better word. Definitely going to have some people that are be willing to argue with you, Jim. But um, we, we love the points. We love uh, the ability to take that information and allow our listeners to to form their own opinions. So um, thank you again. Uh, really, really wanted to say thank you for your time this week. Thanks for spending that time with us. And maybe when the book comes out, we can get you back on the show, but we'd love to have you again and uh, and hope you really enjoy the rest of your, your, your weekend. Well, uh, do the, you know, anytime. I'm happy to do this anytime you like. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. As a reminder, everything discussed in today's podcast is not intended to be investment advice or tax advice to any specific circumstance, and we would recommend that you speak to a tax professional or your investment professional about any questions that you might have related to your own situation. Noble Wealth Partners is not liable for any ambiguous or incorrect information that was mentioned in today's podcast.